You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Shelby Perry is the stewardship director at Northeast Wilderness Trust, whose mission is to conserve forever wild landscapes for nature and people. She received her master's degree from the University of Vermont's Field Naturalist Program and holds a bachelor's in environmental engineering from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. A Vermont native, she's also lived and worked in the Adirondacks, California, the Caribbean, Wyoming, and West Africa, where she served a term in the U.S. Peace Corps. Today I spoke with Shelby about Northeast Wilderness Trust's brand of private lands conservation and their focus on rewilding above developing lands under their care for recreation purposes. Plus, we got into a discussion on the deep personal value of the work Shelby does, which I think will really ring a bell for a lot of listeners who love the things about wilderness that can't really be put into words. We're um, a land trust that works exclusively in wilderness and exclusively in the Northeast. So that's New England and sort of eastern New York. Um, And we apply the traditional land trust model, which is you know, conserving lands through purchasing them or putting easements on them um, to wilderness lands as opposed to the sort of uh, working forest or farm model that a lot of other land trusts use, ranches. Um, And so we own or hold easements on a little over 35,000 acres of land across our region and we've got a pipeline that has many thousand more acres in it of projects that we're currently working on. We have a goal of doing another 25,000 acres by 2025 because we feel like it's so important, especially now in the face of climate change. So we're trying to really ramp up our efforts these days. What kinds of places are you guys uh, protecting? Are these corridors, cores? Um, We work in a, a handful of what we call focal areas and Some of them are aimed at building corridors for um, animal movement. There's one in the Adirondacks we call the Split Rock Wildway, which we collaborated early on. I think it was sort of the creation of um, John Davis of Rewilding Earth. And we've worked with him from early on, you know, doing conservation in that area with a wilderness um, model. We hold three easements and own several properties over there. And then we have other areas where we're building sort of core um, properties where we'll purchase, like, for example, we have an active project right now where we're working on buying 3,000 acres in sort of the mountaintops of northwestern Maine. And so that's more aimed at building like a core area surrounded by forests that are under active forestry management, but some of them are protected as active forestry. And so we know that there's going to be a legacy of open forested landscape there, and we're trying to add a wilderness core area to that. Um, And then we have other properties that are, some of them are smaller or um, we conserve for different values. Like we have a a property that's a little over 300 acres that's in Southeast Massachusetts, and it's sort of our most, I'm going to call it urban, but it's really kind of suburban. It's our like most suburban wilderness that 
is surrounded by homes and neighborhoods and people, um, but we call it kind of an ambassador preserve where we're we're doing the rewilding thing. We're letting it go back to nature. We're closing some of the trails that are on there, but at the same time, we're working with local high schools to get them out on the property and talk about wilderness and rewilding and what that means in Southeast Massachusetts, surrounded by subdivisions. What are some of the differences between the lands that you guys focus on and work on protecting and rewilding and state or federal land in the areas that you work? Is, is there a big difference between those things that the federal or state level are not protecting that you guys are seeking to protect? Federal wilderness is, is sort of limited, right? There's a, there's a pretty... Um, strict definition of what can become wilderness under the Wilderness Act. And it generally has to be at least 5,000 acres and it has to provide things that they've defined wilderness as um, outstanding opportunities for solitude and primitive and unconfined recreation and stuff like that. So in the Northeast, because it's been inhabited by Westerners for so long, it's been really parcelized and really fragmented and a ton of our landscape is in private land ownership. And so the federal properties, while there are federal wilderness areas in the Northeast and the White Mountain National Forest and the Green Mountain National Forest and some others, um, you know, there's kind of limited amount of land they can work with to create federal wilderness in the Northeast. And So that's part of what we do is we try to fill in the blanks where it isn't state-owned land or there isn't enough federal-owned land to do wilderness. We can do wilderness on a smaller scale that really isn't subject to the whims of the federal government and doesn't require an act of Congress to become wilderness. We just need to raise the money to buy it and take care of it, and we get to make it wilderness. So it kind of feels like a shortcut. I I started working in federal wilderness, uh, doing wilderness inventories on BLM lands out in Wyoming. And then to come here and be like, oh, you just raise the money and then it's wilderness. Felt like it was (laughs) kind of cheating, but it's very exciting. (laughs) Is there a grand plan? Like try to give people a a sense of what, what the whole thing to you and to the organization looks like. I mean, it can't just be, hey, there's someone over here. Let's go grab it or maybe it can, give us a sense for like how the big scale of it works all together. There is a certain amount of opportunism to it, for sure. You know, you can't buy a parcel unless it's for sale and you have a willing landowner. So that's part of working in private lands conservation is you just got to work with what you've got. But we also have um, a big strategic plan where we talk about our focal areas and how we're going to try to connect different areas. Um, And we've been working with Harvard Forest, put out this report a couple of years ago called Wildlands and Woodlands and and made sort of recommendations for how much land should be protected working woodlands and how much land should be protected wildlands. And I think they set a goal for the region of around 10%. And right now in in the Northeast, we're probably, it's very hard to count, it turns out. I've done some work trying to figure this out and it's not well documented, but we're probably close to two to three percent of the Northeast is protected with something approaching wilderness level protections. Um, In other words, no commercial harvesting, no motorized to the, you know, to the extent possible. So there's maybe around two to three percent Northeast Wilderness Trust would love to see us get to the 10 percent 
threshold for, for the region. And that, according to this Harvard Forest report, is, is part of how you can protect the sort of ecological functionality of, of a landscape at the, at the scale of the Northeast, which is our sort of working region. In, in Pacifics, we, we have really specific corridors and areas that we work and really specific partners that we um, try very hard to continue to work with. And, and we've done some really great work that we want to build on. But we also, you know, rarely will we find a large tract of land that's for sale that we, if we feel like we can protect it and we have a willing landowner, rarely, rarely would we turn that opportunity down. <laughs> so what's going to be first, mountain lions, wolves, or grizzlies? Or are you just going to try to bring them all back all at once? How does that work? <laughs> We're not going to bring any of them back. We're just going to build the habitat and let them bring themselves back. <laughs> I think the prevailing knowledge around here is that it will be probably wolves first. Our uh, coyote population locally here is is already, I believe, some percentage timber wolf. So we're, you know, we're not far away from having wolves in our landscape again. Our local coyotes get pretty big. So we just need to, we just need to protect the habitat. If we build it, they will come hopefully. <laughs> how does it, how does this all stitch together with it? Cause you guys can't be the only wildlands philanthropy focused organization. It, I see, I'm looking at your map on, uh, if anybody wants to check it out, newwildernesstrust.org slash places we protect. And you can see like the general map. I'm sure I could get out into really good bitty detail here. But you guys aren't the only ones. I mean, your coalitions, tell us a little bit about that. that everybody that's working together on this, what would the map look like? Are you the dominant force here? Or how do you fit in with uh, any other wildlands philanthropy that's working to help stitch the land? back together. We are the only regional wilderness-focused land trust working in the Northeast. Um, there are lots of local partners that do more wild sort of level conservation in smaller areas. And so we um, have partnered with a variety of more local land trusts and they'll sometimes own the land and will hold the easement or will own the land and they'll hold the easement. And that way it's kind of got a double layer of protection on it. Um, but as far as across the entire region, as far as I know, it is only us. And then there are a handful of other organizations like Sweetwater Trust, who um, is more of a funding entity who have worked with us. They've been partners with us since pretty early on. And they work in, in pretty much the whole area that we do. Yeah, all of our other partner organizations are really much more locally focused. So um, we work with organizations that work specifically in the state of New Hampshire or specifically in the state of Maine, all the way down to organizations that work specifically in just one town. Or like we've worked with Friends of the WAPAC who they maintain the the. Um, Wapak Trail, which is one of the oldest long distance hiking trails in this part of the world. It's 21 miles um, and it's down in southern New Hampshire. It goes from Mount Wetatic in Massachusetts across the New Hampshire border and up to Pac-Monadnock in New Hampshire. And that trail, they've come to us a couple of times with opportunities to protect land along the trail. And we've worked with them to try to build 
a little bit of wilderness protections into the land along the trail to kind of preserve that trail system. And also because there is a trail there, there is a corridor of forest there that is now an important wildlife corridor. So our protections um, both protect the trail and the wildlife corridor. Um, so that's one of our sort of longer running partnerships. But yeah, just in terms of like owning and, and pursuing wilderness in the entire Northeast, it is just us. Got it. So let's pull our focus out a little bit and talk about, I mean, do you guys do, do wildlands philanthropists have conferences? Do you guys all get a sense or get to meet up and find out what your impact on a national scale is like? And since you've been in Wyoming and other and worked in other places and other areas, what is your sense of um, how healthy is the wildlands philanthropy business, so to speak? How, how, how big of an impact is this making from your perspective? So from my perspective, I can't speak too much to it out West. My experience out West was entirely in federal wilderness. Um, but here in the Northeast and my experience going to things like rally, which is a national land trust conference. So that's when people from land trusts all over um, the U S come together and have these conferences. There are very few people doing work that is, comparable to what we're doing. When I go to conferences for land trusts, almost none of the workshops directly apply to the work that I'm doing. So we're building this model ourselves for better or for worse um, in a lot of ways. I do think we have an impact in the Northeast. I would say it's still relatively small, but we are working on a program called the Wildlands Partnership where we're aiming to um, sort of offer financial incentives for other land trusts to engage in forever wild conservation because we just believe that there's more work to be done than we could do ourselves. So we need to try to enlist some partners. Um, so we're trying to do that to sort of grow the grow our impact without necessarily taking on the entire stewardship burden of, of taking on a lot more land. Um, I'm biased because I work here and I think the work we're doing is phenomenal and incredible and very important. And I think it will be increasingly important with time. And as our forests get older and store more carbon and grow larger trees, one of the things about the Northeast, which I'm not sure if it's true where you are, but I know out West it's a little different, is um, there's almost no old growth forests left. There's, there's little patches. They're very hard to get to. And that's the reason they're old growth is because no one can find them. And, you know, we take the long view and we'll buy a property that has had timbering on it in the last hundred years or in the last 50 years or whatever. And then we will conserve it as wilderness and promise never to cut it again. And I think often, you know, I'm so jealous of the people who live here in 200 years. If this, if this plays itself huh. out, if this model that we're building works, then there's going to be old growth in the Northeast again. And I think that's so important. I think, you know, people's experience of the forest is, is just so susceptible to the, the law of shifting baselines, right? Where they grew up with all these little trees and they think that little trees are what, what the norm is. And so building in a little bit more age diversity and, and diversity of experience in our Northeastern forests, I think is incredibly valuable. Um, so that's kind of one of the more exciting things about the work we do to me is just thinking about it, what it means down the road. I think everybody says, oh, there's no old growth. So, you know, there's, it's just 
that's just like a baseline condition that everyone takes as as for granted and and I think it's pretty exciting to be working at an organization that says, well then let's make some. <laughs> You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. Yeah, I I think it's laudable. I think it, it must be nice to sit on a rock uh, somewhere and just daydream about 200 years from now when some kid is reading a plaque on one of the places that, uh, that you help to protect uh, now that probably there would be a little picture on the plaque of how horribly it had been treated and and kid trying to reconcile that with this beautiful old growth around them um, and and being so thankful for your work. So, I mean, at least I would fantasize about that a lot because I think that's very, very, very cool. <laughs> um, but what what is that? You, you mentioned earlier that you don't, when you get together with other um, organizations, conferences and things, there aren't as many things there for you. Is that because what's different about your view and how you are protecting these lands than what other trusts and other um, wildlands philanthropy type organizations are doing? What's what's the big difference there? Um, well, I'll name two. So there's two sort of standard land trust models. Um, there's the quote unquote working lands model, right, where they're preserving really kind of a way of life. They're preserving properties to keep them in forestry to keep them in sugaring, to keep them, you know, quote, working for people. So um, their model is based around preserving really sort of the human um, use of that land. And, and that's important. And I'm not trying to say that that's, that's less important than what we do. It's just very different. So there's that. They're, they're doing forestry properties. They're doing, um, we have a lot of maple sugaring in Vermont and, and on the Northeast in general. So they're doing sugar bushes, um, and they're also doing farms. There's a lot of farm conservation. The land trust model is really done a lot for trying to keep small farmers on their lands as things like property taxes and pressures of development and um, just cost of living gets higher. It can be harder and harder for a farmer to hang on to all their farmland. And so people have probably seen yard signs that say forever farm. Those farms are conserved with the land trust. The land trust has bought the legal rights to subdivide it and to do anything with it other than farming. And that makes the property value go down. So they get a payout for the easement and their their land is now a little worth a little bit less because they've sold the ability to profit off of it in other ways. And as a result, their property tax burden sometimes goes down. And, and so it's a way of helping farmers stay on their properties and, and um, timber companies keep their timberlands as large intact pieces. So that was sort of one of the ways the land trust model was pioneered. And so you can imagine that when you're preserving land focused entirely on maintaining a human use of that land, then your stewardship and your fundraising and your way of doing business is going to look a little different from an organization like ours that is really basing their conservation entirely on 
on a wilderness model, but um, we're trying to preserve land for nature and not for human uses of it. And so then there's another type of organization that focuses more on natural areas and things like that, but it's very typical, especially in um, smaller areas, smaller land trusts, but even in larger areas, to really emphasize the human values and the human uses, things like recreation, putting in trails, building access, building parking lots. Um, And we try to take a really de-emphasized model when it comes to recreation. Sometimes we, you know, an organization will buy a land and buy a piece of property and say it's conserved now. And we've added, you know, four parking lots and 72 miles of trails. And (laughs) when you think of that from a wildlife perspective, a lot of these places they're saying, we want to protect this for the turtles or for the, you know, whatever rare species you find there. But then you add all this recreation infrastructure and all these uses that weren't there before. And ultimately you can end up harming the very, you know, values that you're trying to conserve the land for. So we take a much more de-emphasized approach to recreation It's very hard, it turns out, to get people to give you money for things that aren't people-focused at all. (laughs) So we do sometimes um, end up adding trails or access points to our properties. But, um, you know, we take a very measured approach to that. We're very careful about it. It's, It's all about keeping use where it has historically been concentrated and not expanding it into sensitive areas. We monitor all of those areas very closely and make sure that, you know, we're not having a negative impact on the property or any of the conservation values because we're trying to do this for nature. We're trying to do a different kind of conservation that has sort of a different primary beneficiary that's not based entirely on people. And so national land trust conferences and and local land trust conferences and events, people are just very used to thinking about conservation in terms of its benefits to people. And so we're just, we're speaking a slightly different language a lot of times. Yeah. Do you ever think about what it would be like if everything was flipped over to where it should be, in our opinion, of course, (laughs) but uh, where your lands and the work that you guys are doing is the most valuable value that somebody have and they wouldn't have to subsidize a farmer because their um, land has gone down in value because they swore off developing it. I believe deeply in my heart that someday we will get there and that somebody like us, like the organization that I work for, just has to be the group that puts their foot down and says, we're going to stop cutting. We're going to stop using. We're going to take some places that are just for nature. And we're not proposing this happen everywhere. We're proposing this happen on the properties that we own and manage and buy and pay for and build some wilderness back in. And I, I believe and hope and dream that Someday down the line, when these properties are really old and really neat and really biodiverse and really important locally, that those scales will start to flip. I I don't think I could do this if I didn't believe that someday we would be able to to show the value of these places. One of the other things that, that is so 
neat about the work that Northeast Wilderness Trust does is we've never really anywhere in the Northeast, certainly, but almost anywhere, taken a piece of property and left it alone for a long period of time and seen what happens. You know, almost all of our science and almost all of our understanding of what is going to go on in a forest is based on forest that's been manipulated by people. And so understanding how forests are going to cope with things like climate change and are going to cope with things like invasive species and just the changes that are headed our way is something that you know, we're looking entirely or almost entirely at places that are either like tiny little tucked away relics of a pre-European settlement world or modern forests that are heavily manipulated or have been in their very recent history. And so setting aside some places where that isn't going to happen creates this incredible opportunity to see what happens there. You know, probably it's not something that will be that valuable in my lifetime, you know, because human lives are operate on a very different time scale than forests, but hopefully in the lifetime of this organization and in the lifetime of the properties that we're protecting, we'll create places that can set this baseline. Um, we have a couple long-term scientific studies going on on properties that we've protected. Some of them are aimed at just that. You know, They're not us. We're not doing the science. We're partnering with universities and local organizations who are doing it, but but they're they're looking at doing things like inventorying um, biodiversity and and looking at who what species are using these properties and how it changes as the forest gets older and what happens to diversity and species richness and you know when you get that um, added structure forest structure of an old forest big dead standing trees and down trees and you get a whole different sort of level of habitat that we haven't had abundantly in this area in 200 years or so, you know, since the sheep went crazy in the, around the hmm. early 1800s. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen on these properties. We don't know how they're going to change with time. And I think that's incredibly exciting too, is I'm, I'm an ecologist by training. And, and so I dream about what kind of things we can learn from these properties in the future and how we can learn it. I'm always thinking about what kind of, if I can find scientific data collection that I can build into my monitoring reports because somebody has to be out to monitor every easement every year. And we just have these properties protected as forever wild that are actively rewilding and we send people out there every year and they look for violations of the easement, but they could also look for some sorts of scientific data points that we could collect and, and you know, keep that going for as long as we have the easement and end up with some really fascinating information. Does it ever freak you out as an ecologist and doing the work that you're doing that we've come to the state of affairs we find ourselves in and how little we knew about what we were doing, but about the land we were doing it to and how it even any of it works in the first place. Like there's a huge amount 
of nature that we don't even know how that happens. We just know how to put chunks of it close to each other and we hope it just does the rest that don't understand. <laughs> does that trip you out sometimes that you're just doing this work and you're looking or makes you look around at the, how the rest of the world is treating their land and, and, and wildlife and habitat and everything without the first clue, really, truly. I mean, we know a lot of stuff, but there's a lot we don't, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, it really freaks me out. <laughs> I think that's part of why I'm in wilderness is I think wilderness and, and rewilding the process of sort of letting something rewild on its own, letting nature control what happens is, is a, a humble act, right? It's, it's me saying, I, I don't think people know best in this case. And I think that there are times when we should just let nature take its course and see what happens. And I'm, I'm very comfortable with that. I'm a hundred percent sure that in all of these scenarios, nature's going to be a better job, going to do a better job of, of fixing whatever wrongs we've created on a property in the past than I am going to do. So it, it, we rarely do active restoration um, on our properties for, for that very reason. We're, we're sort of a will of the land kind of an organization. So occasionally we'll do things like remove culverts or, or things that are, um, you know, human added. Sometimes we call them trammels because the, the language in the Wilderness Act is untrammeled. So if we get a property and it has trammels like culverts, like things that, that sort of obstruct the normal flow of natural life, sometimes we'll remove those. But that's the extent. We don't try to rebuild wetlands and we don't try to regrade surfaces. We just watch and wait and see what happens because it all does, you know, if on a long enough timeline, nature will fix it all. We just have to be very patient. Yeah, then you don't have to know very much to take that view. <laughs> Right. Or pretend that we do, right? Because I, I grew up thinking we knew a lot yeah, more yeah. about this stuff. And I thought somebody, somebody like you, I yeah. thought I didn't know a lot about in the beginning what you guys know, but I figured you knew it all. I figured that's what your degree was for, what your study was <laughs> for. And, and, and also that long view thing. I wanted to go to that topic just because you're doing work that, that must train you to think in a really big way, well beyond your life here, well beyond a, a typical human lifespan. Do you think, do you find that uh, people glom on to that or are they scared of, of, of that approach? Has anybody in your organization done a, done a, uh, a speaking gig or anything with a group of people? And, and, and is that kind of talk met with uh, probably with groups we attract, <laughs> rousing applause and interest, or are people <laughs> scared to talk about things that are going to happen? Most of the work, their life's work is really not going to flourish or flower or bloom until well after they're gone. Yeah, I think we sort of, our crowd self-selects for people who are excited about it. Yeah. Um, it's not a not a um, representative cross-section of the population coming to our events, but but the people who come to our events, we've um, we've given this speaking series with Mark Anderson, who um, and Tom Butler of Tompkins Conservation, and they give this talk that we call Untrammeled. Mark gives really kind of the science argument for wilderness, and then Tom gives sort of the spiritual and emotional argument for wilderness. And it's 
been incredibly well received. We've each time we get a group of people in the room and let them, you know, give them that that talk. I think, I mean, for me, it's it's really exciting, fascinating information that that they present, and it it really makes you think about things on a on a different scale and in a bigger way. And and people tend to leave feeling pretty energized and excited about wilderness, which is really cool to see. You're you're kind of talking about becoming heroes, you know, because people do look back. Those people in the future will look back and go, wow, these people. I mean, anytime you've stood at a national monument or or something and, it, and it's talking about something somebody did a, just 200 years ago, which really isn't that long either. I mean, this country's like brand new. Mm. This, is, this is like a shiny new country that we yeah. just drove off the lot. And look at it now. <laughs> but, and into um, a telephone pole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How sad is it, though, that to, to be a hero is to be somebody who just stops doing stuff? I mean, yeah. all we're talking about here, it's not terribly revolutionary. We're just saying, like, hey, some places we should just not. We should just not. <laughs> yeah, well. So, I don't well, know. I'm not doing it to, to talk about be a hero. I'm doing it because it has to be done. Somebody has to do it. And, and I'm excited to be one of the people that gets to do it and that gets to, to advocate for it. But, but I don't think this is about me or the people who work here. This is about the land. This is about letting, letting parts of the land be free again. Well, that's not for any of us to declare ourselves heroes, right? It's just for someone else if they would like to go, yeah. wow, that was really, really cool of you. Thank you so much. Uh, and appreciate people that do mm -hmm. your kind of work in any way that they choose. You won't have any choice anyway. You'll be gone. You know, but yeah, it is really about us. <laughs> I'll be it's long dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've talked so much about our own demise today. Um, but what do you do... <laughs> What do you do? What does it feel like for you to visit one of the properties? I'm sure you do that a lot. You know, um, you can tell us about your favorite one or your favorite one right now, um, because I'm sure it changes. But, you know, what, what are you going out there for? I read in your bio that you very specifically stated you, you like to be far away from trails even. So you're like a real wildernut out there. What, what is it for you? What gets it for you when you're out there, that experience? Ah. Uh. It's so hard to put into words. I I love all of our properties. They're all a little bit different. Um, I go to as many of them as I can, as often as I can, <laughs> because it's just so cool to see them change over time. And yeah, I've only been working here for four years, but I've already seen changes in them, some pretty significant, which is really neat. I love going to every new active project. I I always aim for the the blank spots on the map going as far away from where people have gone in the past just to see what's out there. Um, I think that just sort of that feeling of being alone and out in the woods and just knowing that you're a tiny little piece in this really big functioning world and and nature is is so huge and fascinating and amazing <laughs> that anytime I get to look at it up close and spend time in it, it it's it's 
kind of life changing. I'm, um, but you said, you know, thinking when you were a kid that, that ecologists kind of knew everything and we had it all figured out. I thought that too. I thought that right up until I was in grad school for it. And all of a sudden I found the edges of knowledge. I found the edges of human understanding of, of nature when I was in grad school. I used to think that any question I had, if I just looked long enough, I could find the answer in a book. And I don't, I know that's not true anymore. I know that I can ask questions that nobody knows the answer to about nature and about the world. And, and going out and finding those questions and asking them, even if I never figure out how to answer them, just feels so important and so sort of fundamentally human to like go out and seek understanding and see what you find is, I don't know, it just totally drives me. <laughs> I've never heard people say it exactly the same, and I've heard the same theme throughout most. But it's always different whenever I ask that question, just exactly what it means. And it has everything to do with your particular path in life. And, and, uh, but that part about not being able to put it into words, our language is just woefully incompetent in this regard. <laughs> And we all just look at each other, I think, at these get-togethers that we have and, and the thing and the work that we do with our, our closer coworkers. And it's more of a wink and a nod than anything else. It's just there's no, you know, just go out there. I mean, there's, you shouldn't be able, if it was as incredible, if it was half as incredible as we keep alluding to, we shouldn't be able to describe it with words. <laughs> Though people have really tried and done pretty well, you know, Aldo Leopold didn't do a bad job writing a book about something and making you feel as close as you could reading a book to what wilderness is like. But still, it's just a wink and a nod. Well, I really appreciate the work that you guys do. I really appreciate John for forcing you to be on the show today. And uh, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to be on Rewilding Earth. Oh, thank you. And thank you for the work you're doing and for this show. It's, it's important and I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.